Here a few years ago, Jorge Mario Bergoglio shocked the world. Uh, he went to a detention center on the outskirts of Rome, and he washed the feet of men and women at a juvenile detention center there. Well, why was that such a shocking thing? You know, after 2,000 years after Jesus set that example, it still kind of shocks us, I think. Um, we misunderstand, I think, to some degree. Some people do what Jesus was doing. But why was that so shocking, that event that occurred in early 2014 on Maundy Thursday? Because who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? He's the Pope. He's Pope Francis. Francis the first or the second or the third? Francis. Why? Because he's the first, and you never call the first the first until you have a what? Until you have a second. He washed their feet, and since then he's placed a lot of emphasis, more and more emphasis on this exercise and practice, which was restricted to men doing in the Catholic Church and has reformed the rules and allowed women to do it and encouraged the more widespread practice of it. After 2,000 years, that practice, what Jesus did, still somewhat shocks us. And especially when you consider the culture from which it came, there are two things that you don't do in, East, in Middle Eastern culture. Well, there are more than two things, okay. But I know of two things that you don't do. You do not eat, you do not shake, with your left hand. You just don't. And if you uh, don't have a right hand, you're out of luck, okay? Uh, the other is you do not show people the bottom of your feet. You don't show people the sole of your foot unless you want to do what? To insult them. So you might have seen some pictures in the Middle East of people rioting and, uh, and uh, maybe attacking some kind of embassy or whatever, and, and sometimes you'll see them show it, throwing their what? Their shoes. That is the height of insult. So in this culture, where they think that the foot is the lowliest and demeaning and degrade, or demeaned and degraded part of the body, this was a really shocking thing for Jesus to do. What I want to do tonight is talk about the, the cup of the servant, that is the servant leader's cup. And the reason is it's in the scarlet thread, the scarlet thread of redemption. We come to the time of Jesus then observing the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. And of course, we know that this account is given in fairly great detail in the synoptics and to some degree by Paul in 1 Corinthians. But we're going to look at the passage in, in John tonight. Um, and when you look at the thread of redemption, servanthood plays a key role. Several people in the Old Testament were called the servant of the Lord. Uh, and we see all three, the patriarchs, for example, who were they? Well, there were more than three, but the primary three were Abraham, who? Isaac and Joseph. They were all called servants of the Lord. Moses was called servant of the Lord. At the very end of the uh, Torah, in Deuteronomy, 
There are 34 chapters. So in the 34th chapter, it talks about Moses dying. And then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. <laughs> mm. And then what does it say? So Moses, the servant of the Lord, did what? He died. He died in the land of Moab. And according to the word of the Lord, then they buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. So Moses, his epitaph, that's really what it is. His epitaph in Deuteronomy 34, if, he, if we did find a tombstone for him today, it probably would be very much like the tablets of the Ten Commandments written on stone by the finger of God. The Bible doesn't say he did that, but let's just imagine that. And that God had written his epitaph, it would say what? The servant of the Lord. The same thing was said of subsequent leaders like Joshua and Caleb and Samson even. Pretty interesting. Kings. Which kings do you think were called by, in the Bible servants of the Lord? David, unquestionably. Solomon. And then the only other one was one of the reforming kings. Hezekiah. Absolutely, yeah. Prophets like Samuel and, of course, Elijah. Jonah, Isaiah, and a little-known prophet, not even a minor prophet. We don't even have a book after in, in his name, Ahijah. Which woman in the Old Testament, the one woman that's called a servant of the Lord? Her son she prayed for and prayed for and prayed for, and when he was finally born, she dedicated him. Anna, Anna. The leader of the Jews when they came back after the uh, captivity, and he laid the foundation of the stone for the temple, the second temple. Who was that? Zerubbabel. He was called servant of the Lord. Even some pagan kings were called servants of the Lord. And some of you will remember that from Vacation Bible School because we looked at the book of Daniel. Even Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus were called servants of the Lord because they did the Lord's will as servants. You see, this motif runs all the way through Old Testament history. And when we think about Jesus, we knew that he was going to be, if we were before he came, we would know that he would be a servant of the Lord because he was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that said, there's going to rise up a prophet. God's going to raise up a prophet like whom? Like me like Moses. So he was going to be like Moses. He was going to be a servant of the Lord. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 3 that yes, he was like Moses, but he had even greater glory. In the Old Testament, the, probably the most obvious uh, allusion to um, servanthood is found in which prophet would you think? Well, Daniel, yeah, we've got, and, and Daniel was a servant. Technically, it doesn't say servant of the Lord, but he was a servant. Another servant that wasn't called, quote, the servant of the Lord, who probably sets a model for this after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was Joseph. Uh, but no, not Daniel. Not Jeremiah. Yeah, we're going to hit it sooner or later. <laughs> Isaiah. Why? Because we know that there are a number of passages in Isaiah now that we've isolated. I don't think that Jeremiah said, well, these are the servant passages. 
because there are more servant passages than this. The servant is mentioned in Isaiah 41, but it's not listed as one of the servant passages. There are four of them in Isaiah, and they have a different emphasis in each one. Isaiah 42, it says that he is going to come. The servant is going to come. And this is talking about Jesus, although Isaiah didn't know it was Jesus. The servant is going to come to bring what to the nations? Close to peace. Close to peace. And if we are the kind of people that God wants us to be, we love mercy and we walk humbly. And what is the middle one? We do justice. So the servant is going to come to bring justice to all nations. The servant in Isaiah 49, for his people, he is going to restore God's people. In Isaiah 50, he is going to sustain God's people. But the famous passage begins in the latter part of Isaiah 52, runs over to 53, and at the beginning of 53, who will believe our report? And that is about, of course, the servant of the Lord that is going to do what? He's going to be persecuted. He's going to have his beard plucked. He's going to be then a ransom for many. And of course, that is the suffering servant passage. So the motif is very strong in the Old Testament. When we come then to Jesus coming as a servant and fulfilling that role in God's plan of redemption, we come to this passage in John 6. What has happened, um, or John 13, that was, John 6 was this morning. Excuse me if I make, make reference to John 6 too many times tonight. In John 13, by this time, we know when we look at the synoptics and John's gospel together, then we weave it together that Mary has anointed Jesus, we heard about that last week when Chris told us about the anointment. At whose house? It was in Bethany. Simon the, the leper. That's happened. Then there's been the triumphal entry with popular acclaim, and everybody, you know, praises him and says, Hosanna. No, not everybody. <laughs> not everybody. The chief priest did not like it. And one of the reasons they didn't was who else came with Jesus? And his entourage. I, I think that, I don't know, maybe Nicodemus came along too, you know, because he's just then been converted. Uh, maybe blind Bartimaeus comes along too because he comes on the road. But we know for sure the other key figure beside Jesus and Mary and Martha in John 11 is there. Because John tells us in his gospel that he's there. Who is it? Lazarus. And a lot of folks are coming to see Lazarus as much as they're coming to see Jesus. You know, wow, this guy was dead four days, and there he is. See him? That's, guy, he's one, that's, that's, what, that's the one that Jesus raised, you know. Hmm. So there's a lot of popular acclaim, and this causes the chief priests to do what? To become jealous. And they then begin to seek his death, just as Chris told us last week. The Pharisees are opposed to his great popularity due to Lazarus' resurrection. So the religious leaders, it's not everybody that's cheering him. And Jesus has just predicted his death. Now, it comes out in a sort of different way than it does in the synoptics. You know, there are three times in the synoptics, maybe four, where he specifically predicts his death, and it follows pretty much the same formula. He's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be reviled, rebuked, and he's going to then be slain and then be resurrected. He doesn't put it that way in John's gospel. You see, the, the Greeks come to him. And they want to see him. And uh, he then, after they gather around him, he begins to talk about what's going to happen. And in John 12, he gives a call to follow. And when he gives his call to follow there, 
it's an entree. It's the beginning part of his predicting his suffering. So if you've got your Bibles, look at John 12, verses 25 and 26. And it's very interesting. What is the motif in which he then makes this announcement? What word picture do you see of Jesus about himself in John 12, 25 and 26? John 12, 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. This is found in the Gospels in the passage just before the transfiguration. Right after he has given the call to hard call to discipleship. Then he says, if anyone serves, there it is, he must follow. He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do we get a picture here? He's talking about what? Serving three times. John's account then goes on in John 12, 36. It's not Jesus that says this. But then after he has predicted his death, it's very interesting. John in his account says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes what is going on there. And when he does that, he refers to which passage? The very first passage that he refers to in explaining what is happening is Isaiah 53, 1. Who will believe our report? You see, Jesus is coming as the triumphant king. Everybody expects him to be victorious politically, militarily, economically, socially, lead the Jews out from under the yoke of the Romans and that sort of thing. So who is going to believe this report? He is, in fact, going to be a suffering servant. That's what John is saying. This fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. So everything that's happening after this, immediately after after this, is set against that picture, you see, of the suffering servant. It's very clear. Jesus is. Jesus was the suffering servant, according to John. So the following text, and really all accounts of the Lord's Supper ought to be seen against that background. Hmm. So here's the text. We're not going to read uh, all of uh, John 13. I think I said John 6 again. John 13 again. John 13, 1, we're going to read through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to what? To the very end. So what's happening now is he's demonstrating his love. During the supper, and this is the only reference to the supper, really, in the the Johannine account. He doesn't give a very long description about the supper, does he? He says, during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him then... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Remember Luke, the ninth chapter? He turns his face like flint to Jerusalem before his ascension because he knows he's what? He's going home. So knowing this, knowing that his days on earth are coming to an end, the clock is ticking, he's going to, be go, he's going to go back to God, his Father. He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments, and taking the towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he has already started washing the disciples' feet. Whose feet would you expect him to wash first? Maybe Judas's. Judas is there. He washes his Judas's feet. But come on, folks. Who would you really expect him to wash first? 
Which disciple? Peter. I mean, he's, he's the leader. Now, I don't know why, but he didn't. He's already washing their feet. Then he comes to Peter. I think this says something to Peter. <laughs> if you're going to be first, you need to be what? Well, maybe in the middle or last. I'm not sure. But okay. So then he comes to Simon Peter and he said to him, and then he, that is Peter, said to the Lord, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do to you, you do not realize now, but you will understand a little later hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never, never shall you wash my feet. And you know what Jesus said. Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, if I don't wash your feet, hmm, you have no part of me. Wow. And Peter, being the Peter that he is, goes from one extreme to the other. He goes from zero to 60 in about three seconds, doesn't he? And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands, my, my head. Give me a bath. <laughs> and then Jesus said to him, you see, it's, it's cut, there's a little bit of humor here. Peter, did you bathe today? Okay. You, you really ought to bathe yourself, you know. He says to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, because you see it is the feet that have gotten dirty on the journey then to the Last Supper. But that person is completely clean. And, and now he's using a metaphor here. Peter, your feet may be dirty, but you're either clean or you're not, okay? And he says, and, and you are clean, but not all of you. What's he talking about? There's one there that is not clean. Okay. Mm. You see in verse number 11, for he knew that the one, the one who was betraying him all this time, and he's washing Judas' feet, and he fed Judas the Lord's Supper. Hmm. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, reclining at the table with them in fellowship, okay, reclining at the table as the teacher and Lord, reclining at probably the head of the table once again. Okay, Remember that word, reclining. He said to them, do you not know what I've done to you? You see, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And that word I am there isn't the formula for I am, okay, ego I me. It's simply I me, which means I'm being, okay. So don't read too much into that. But it does mean, you're right, I am continuing to be. That's important. I've, I've washed your feet. You call me Lord and teacher. You call me Lord and rabbi. And you're right before, because I continue to be that. Wow. Wow. Verse 14. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave... Y'all are no greater than his master, than me, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Oh, wow. This gets pretty deep. Who is the sent one? He is the sent one. Who is the sender? The father. So what he's also saying here is, I'm not greater than the father. I'm a what? 
I'm a servant. And I send you. We've already talked about that. As my Father has sent me, he says this after the resurrection. As my Father sends me, so send I you. I am the sender. You are the sent ones. You are not greater than I. I am sent by the Father. I'm not greater than the Father. And you see, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you do what? If you do what? If you wash other people's feet. You know, the parallel accounts, of course, of the Lord's Supper found in Matthew 26, Mark, the 14th chapter, and Luke, the 22nd chapter. There's another account of the Lord's Supper that's not found in the synoptics. So, trivial question. Most of you know the answer. It was written by Paul. It's in the letter to whom? The Corinthians. The 11th chapter. So most of the time when I lead the Lord's Supper, which we will be doing next week, and the next month, Chris is going to be leading. I don't know which text he will use. You can use text from one of the synoptics. They're a little bit different. Or the one from um, 1 Corinthians 11. So there are four accounts. What happened? He took the bread, and after he had what? Given thanks. He had blessed it. He broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Then what? Do this in remembrance of me. Some accounts have it there and some don't. But you put the accounts together and that's what he said. And then he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave them the cup and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament in what? My blood. And then one of the accounts says, which is poured out for many. And then he says, do this in, as often as you drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he makes a declaration. And um, a couple of the passages, and when you put it together, it has to do with the bread in one instance and the wine in another instance. You put those together and it goes something like this. I will not eat it again, that is the supper. I won't eat it again. Nor will I drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day. What's that day? In heaven, that appointed day for the heavenly feast. When I drink it and eat it, when I drink it anew with you. You see, it's an invitation then to the banquet, the heavenly banquet. Where in my Father's kingdom? And that's basically what we know about what happened at the Lord's Supper. What's the significance of that? I'm not going to get into all, you know, our theology about the Lord's Supper. But there are some things that we find. Some of the things that we say about the Lord's Supper are built on other texts. About fellowship and about congregational polity and priesthood of the believer and all that sort of thing. You know that I believe it's, it, it should be the folks that have been baptized, the circle that's been established and all. But when you look at these texts, it's, it essentially says this. First of all, Jesus was doing what? He was full, fulfilling Scripture. He did not come to destroy the Scripture, the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. So he kept the law. So he's doing what it says then in Exodus, two places in Exodus, Exodus 23 and Exodus 12. When they first did it in Exodus 12, and later they were commanded to do it. In Deuteronomy 16, they are to observe this and have this Passover meal as a part of the feast of the Passover. So he's doing it. He also is doing it for fellowship. Jesus expressed a deep desire, a passionate desire to eat the Passover with them. He knew this was going to be his last meal. Well, no, it wasn't going to be his last meal on earth. But it was going to be the last meal before his what? Crucifixion. There, was another, there were other meals. We know that. Okay. It's also symbolic fulfillment of what we talked about in John 6 this morning. And what did we say in John 6 this morning? We don't just go to a smorgasbord and taste. We come to do what? To consume. To eat His flesh and to drink His blood. To eat the living bread and to, 
and to drink from the fountain of life. And John 6 says, you've got to do this. And this is what scandalized many of the followers. And some left him. So it's symbolic of that. And of course, other traditions, some other traditions believe that when they're eating the Lord's Supper, they're literally eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood because it's been transubstantiated. We do not believe that. We believe that it's symbolic. It's a memorial. He commands them uh, to do what? Whenever you do this, whenever you eat, remember. Whenever you drink, remember. It also has an end-time promise associated with it. Now, Paul tells us about the end-time promise later in 1 Corinthians 11, but we don't have any evidence that Jesus said this. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember the death of our Lord. So he didn't say it. He wouldn't put himself in the third person until he comes again. But there is an eschatological, there's an end-time promise that Jesus gives in this. He says, you know, I'm not going to eat it again. I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. So there's a future promise. And then there's a foreshadowing of his suffering in this. It's clearly expressed in Luke twenty-two fifteen. It's just before he does the Lord's Supper. This is the Lucan account, which becomes important to our story in a few minutes. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, he says in Luke twenty-two fifteen. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until I eat it in the fulfilled kingdom of God. So he has told them that this is predicting his suffering. John's account says nothing about all of that, okay? (laughs) That's from the synoptics and from 1 Corinthians. But we know that about the Lord's Supper. John's account of the Lord's Supper focuses on what? Two things. It focuses to some degree, to a great degree, on his servanthood, but there is also the implication of his suffering. John's account. So John's account is about the suffering servant. Hmm. And John's account, I would suggest to you, is about Jesus demonstrating what it means to be a servant leader. So let's take a look at a few things in the text. The first thing I would say is uh, it's important for us to understand the background. What's led to this? Well, there, there have been a couple of incidents that have really troubled Jesus. The first is in Matthew 18. If you want to look at the parallel accounts, it's found in Mark 9 and Luke 9. So Matthew 18, what happens? You know, they've come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's this consternation. They're arguing, you know, at the bottom of the mountain, and people are upset because the disciples have not been able to heal the boy that is a son, that is is possessed by an evil spirit. And the father is asking the disciples to heal him the can't. And you know the story. Jesus cast out the demon, and they ask him, well, why couldn't we do that? And he said, this kind comes out only by hard work. This kind comes out only by demanding a great miracle from God. No. This kind comes out only from what? Prayer. And in the prayer, one might ask a miracle of God. So once again, we come back to the emphasis on what? Prayer. And then he goes to a place where he can teach him, and he doesn't want people following him. They kind of retreat to a solitary place. But he doesn't feed 5,000, he doesn't feed 4,000, he doesn't feed (laughs) 1,000. And they go back to the house. Where is the house? Whenever you see that reference, they went into the house, they came out of the house, unless it is specifically said to be somewhere else. And if they were in Galilee, it's probably, probably Simon Peter's house. Where? In Capernaum. That was his base of operations. So they go back into the house, and then he says, you know something, something bothers me. What were you all arguing about in the road? And they thought... I think, it doesn't say so in the Scripture, I think they look at each other and say, did he really notice that? 
And he did. And he has to push them a little bit further. And they finally admit, well, we were kind of talking about who's the greatest. Hmm. And he says, don't you know, look, that if you're going to be great, you've got to be a what? A servant. And he takes a little child in front of him and he, and he stands as a kind of model there for childlike acceptance and discipleship. And he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives whom? Me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but the one who what? Sent me. You see, you see that motif of servantship even there at that beginning. He hasn't really talked about servanthood beyond this. He said, if you're going to be great, the sign of being great is you will be a servant. So that's the first time it happens. And then there's a second incident. Okay, Matthew 18 followed by Matthew 20, two chapters later. Mark 9 followed by Mark 10, one chapter later. And Luke doesn't really have a parallel account exactly for this event. Uh, Mark says, James and John come to him. They say, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that a pretty bold claim? When we pray to the Lord and we have the season of prayer, do we go to the Lord and say, we want you, we, we want, okay, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask? I can guarantee you that most of the time those prayers are not going to be answered. Okay? We pray and we ask for what? We want your will to be done. Help us understand what your will is and we'll pray for it. And then when we pray for it, we know it's going to happen. Okay. And, and you know, you would expect Jesus to say, come on, guys. You know, you know better than to ask that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. What does he say? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And of course, they're thinking about, you know, the, the Passover meal that, that's, that's going to happen. You know, this is before the Last Supper. Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, they, they have probably followed some of them in John's baptism. And they assume, you know, Jesus was baptized. But, well, sure, yeah. We're good Baptist church members. We'll come to the Lord's Supper and have fellowship together. And yeah, we're all baptized believers, you know. And then Jesus looks at them. And then James and John say, well, of course, Lord, yes, we'll do that. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you will be baptized with baptism. You will drink of the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. We don't know about John. You know, John supposedly lived a long life, died on the Isle of Patmos. We know those facts. We don't know really how he died, but we know how James died. And he did drink the cup of suffering, and he died a martyr's death. Well, what happens then after this is the other disciples kind of get riled up, you know. <laughs> they became indignant. The only time I remember Jesus getting indignant, maybe there were a couple of times. One of the times was when they refused to do what? The disciples refused to allow what? The disciples stood in the way of whom? The children. And Jesus became indignant at that. Well, the disciples become indignant with, Jesus, with, with James and John. And, you know, what we, and Peter's among that, among that group. I think Peter's saying to himself, yeah, who do they think they are? I think they became indignant not only because James and John did it. Maybe they did it also because they wondered why they hadn't done it first. And then Jesus makes five very important points in response. Now, this is all in background before the Lord's Supper, okay? He says this, I'm not authorized to say that. That surprises you, you know? Well, who is authorized to say who's going to be on his right hand and his left hand? Surely he ought to. He's going to be the Lord of all creation. What's he saying? That's not my decision to make. There can only be one other person that makes that decision. Who is it? The Father. So what do we see there? We see submission to the Father's will. Wow. 
the servant. Then he says, anyone who aspires, basically, anyone who aspires to servanthood should be ready to drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism. And then he says, he goes on to say, you know, you look at the leaders of the Gentiles. You look at those folks, and they lord it over their people. They exercise authority over them, and they act great. He says, you're not to be like that. So he rejects the worldly patterns of leadership. Hmm. And then he says, true servanthood. And he uses a similar sort of picture. Instead of talking about greatness and, and servanthood, here he talks about the first and the last. If you're going to be great... And if you're going to be first, you must become last. And you must become not only a servant, but you must become, and then he uses a different term, slave, a slave of all. So you see what he's saying? Number one, he doesn't have the authority. That pictures him as a kind of servant. If you aspire to servanthood, you must suffer like I do. Don't follow the worldly patterns. And two greatness is marked by being a servant and a slave. And then finally, he said, you know what? You know why? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to be a what? A ransom for many. Now, that's the second event. You see, that's setting the stage for the foot washing, I think. Does that make sense? What about Luke's account? Luke's account is found in Luke 22. And he doesn't talk about James and John coming, but he has the rest of that text. He talks about those other things that Jesus said about servanthood. Now, what's interesting about this is, Where do you find Luke's account? Open your Bibles to Luke 22, verse 24. If you got your Bible. If you don't, open your iPhone to Luke 22, verse 24. What incident has just occurred when Luke says that he addresses this issue of servanthood with them? So it may be a third incident. Or it may be Luke's account of what's found in the other two synoptics. What has just happened? If you've got your paragraph Bible, what's just happened before the 24th verse? The Lord's Supper. He celebrated the Lord's Supper with them. And you know, after the Lord's Supper, they're still bickering. Who's going to be greatest? And I think what happens is, Jesus said, I have had enough. Insert that at the beginning of John 6, right after the supper. He said, you know, and he, the devil went into, into, into uh, what's his name's heart? Judas's heart. And I think he finally said, and then, and then it says he, and then all of a sudden he gets up from supper and he, you know, he disrobes to the point where he can wash them and he takes the towel and the bowl. I think that's what's happened. He's had enough and he is going to set them straight. Talk is fine, but he's finished talking. He's going to do what? He's going to show them. Hmm. See, in the, all of this, the, Jesus demonstrated suffering servanthood. So, in the one hand, he demonstrated suffering and he demonstrated servanthood. First of all, in the meal, which isn't explained greatly in this passage, but that's why we went through the synoptics, he's just demonstrated his willingness to suffer. You see, by his words, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It fulfills the earlier words where he has said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to what? To be a ransom. You see, a payment. As he told John, James and John before, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? What is that? That is the cup of suffering. Paul put it this way in Philippians, and you know the passage. We're called to do the same thing. If we want to know the power of the resurrection, we must also know the what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Why? That we would be conformed to his death in order that we might attain the resurrection of the dead. 
That's what he's talking about. So in this respect, in the Lord's Supper, he is demonstrating his willingness to suffer, and we know that he did. So there's the suffering part. Where's the servant part? The foot washing very clearly demonstrated this. He was willing not only to suffer, but he was willing to serve. To, be, to, to whom was he being obedient? Was he being obedient to the disciples? No. I'm going to make a bold statement, but I think it's true. He was being obedient to the Father. Well, it's not a bold statement because that's, we know, John 5, that he only did what he saw the Father doing, and he came to do the Father's will, John 4. So he's always about doing the Father's will, and he was always led by whom? Who led Jesus every moment of the day and night? The Holy Spirit. So I believe that he is following the will of the Father, directed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't say so, but I think I can say so confidently. When he, when he washes the disciples' feet, I don't think that he's doing this by himself, on his own, just as a kind of renegade act. No, I think he's being obedient to the Father. Hmm. He always watched the Father. He always followed the Spirit. So that's the first thing that we see. He's being obedient. Secondly, it's a demeaning act, and we know this. You've heard about this, I'm sure, many times. Foot washing was the lowest job in the household. People's feet were dirty, mucky, filled with animal feces, that, that sort of thing covered with it and all. And it was not only a demeaning act, but it was the act performed by the lowest slave in the household. And if there were women slaves, it was the lowest woman's, woman's slave. All servants wanted to avoid it. This is probably why Peter refuses to be washed. This is the Lord. You know, you might say, well, Peter's just being arrogant. No, I, I think that Peter is really concerned. He looks at the Lord and says, this is my master. What a demeaning act for him to have to go through. Don't, don't do it, Lord. Jesus' willingness to do this, this act, it, it's far more than a ritual act that you some, sometimes see performed at church. You know, we haven't done a foot washing that I remember in Gambrel Street since I've been here. But when we do that, what happens? We come in, we make sure before we come that whoever's going to have their feet washed does what? They take a shower. They have clean socks without holes in them. You know, that sort of thing. That's not what's happening here. Their feet are dirty. And when Jesus does this, he is expressing that he is absolutely, totally, 100% sold out to servanthood. The meaning act. The purpose of the Son of Man is not to be served, but to come into what? To serve. You see, he had already declared his servanthood to be an essential essence of who he was. His servanthood is essential to his I amness. In that passage, Luke 22, it seems contradictory. And we have an allusion to it in John. You know, he's talked about the, the master and the teacher and who is greater. In Luke 22, he says, For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table. That, that's the one that is sitting at the table to be what? Served. Are the one who serves. And what's the answer to that? Who's greater? The one who reclines at the table. You've got servants serving you. But then he goes in Luke twenty two twenty two. he says this, Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But, but, and here he does say, I am. Here he does say, ego I me. Here he does say, but the one who is the incarnation of Jehovah God Almighty, the I am, am here in your midst to do what? Does he say to recline at the table? No. He says what? I'm here as a servant. What a contradictory statement. 
He's just said, you know, it, it's the leader, it, it, it's the king, it's the head of the household that reclines at the table and the servant comes in and serves. But what I'm telling you folks is, I am, I am, I am the incarnate God Almighty in human form, the Messiah. I am the one who is among you as a what? Servant. Wow. I think another thing this demonstrates is Jesus' perfect servant leadership. There are convergence of three characteristics here that happen at this event. Obedience, suffering, and servanthood. We've seen the obedience. He's being obedient to whom? The Father. And he's graphically demonstrating that then in the act of washing the feet. The suffering, he has already said at the, at the supper, this is a cup of suffering which is poured out for humans as a sacrifice, we know, for sin. And he has assumed the role of servant to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. Those all three come together. It's summarized in the great Philippian hymn, which many of you can probably quote. But you see, all three of those ingredients coming together, it depicts what's happening in John 13. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not think it to be robbery to be equal to God. He didn't think it was something that should be grasped. But he did what? What's the first thing? He emptied himself. He poured himself out, taking on the form of a what? Bond, servant, there's a second one. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Emptied, bond, servant, obedient. That's what's happening in this event. Let me uh, do about six or seven very quick points, okay, that we can observe from this passage in addition to that. The importance of servanthood to the kingdom. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus knows that he's about to go home to the Father. This is the last teaching that he is going to have with the disciples before the resurrection. And it begins then a fairly long discourse in the Gospel of John. You know, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17, all those great passages. That last great discourse, the last great teaching with the disciples that he's going to have, and the great prayer are all introduced by this event. What does that say? He puts a lot of importance on being the suffering servant. Second, it depicts the depth of his selfless love. Verses 2, 11, and 30. It says that he served. He served Judas. Wow. And washed his feet. The passage in verse 2 says that Judas already intended and knew in his heart that he was going to betray the Lord, and yet he stays there for the supper and the foot washing. He doesn't leave until verse 30. And Jesus loves him. Jesus knows that he's going to die not only for the other 11, but he's going to die for Judas. It shows his deep and selfless love. It fulfills what he tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, do what? Love your enemy and pray for those who do what? Persecute you. And then on the cross, he does what? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It shows the depth of his selfless love. This event also gives insight into his servant identity. Jesus poured himself out to become human. And when he did that, he limited his power, right? We know that. But we don't know how much he limited. Did, he, did, he, did it take away all of his power? No. He would pray to the Father, and the, fa- the Father empowered him to do great and mighty and powerful things, to change water to wine, to raise people from the dead, to touch a leper and heal him, to command people from a distance that were sick to be healed. To cast out legions of demons from legion. He has power. All of Jesus' life on this earth, I believe, his adult life, he was working at restraining the exercise of that great power that he had. 
You know the definition of humility. It's like a great steed, a horse that has the, bra- the bridle in his mouth and is restrained. Jesus, in fact, his servant identity is this. He had power beyond what we can imagine, and yet he restrained it. When James and John said, let's call down he- the fire from heaven on these Samaritans, he said, no, don't do it. I came to save, not to destroy. He says to Peter, after he lops off Malchus's ear, he says, put your, sh- your sword back up. Don't you know that if I wanted to command... If I wanted to call upon the Father, He would send how many legions? Twelve legions of angels. 72,000 angels to my assistance. He, he looks at Pilate, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, if it were, I could call upon my followers and they would keep me from not only being arrested but crucified. Who else was afraid of Jesus? Who expressly, does it say in the Gospels, was afraid of Jesus whenever He came into their presence? The demons. Have you come to persecute me? Have you come to... And that's what Legion says. Oh, please, 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 don't, you know, basically don't kill us. Let us go into this wine. They recognized His power. And this great and powerful Son of God as a Son of Man has restricted that power. That is a sign of what, folks? Servanthood. And washing His disciples' feet, He shows just the opposite. He is abject, powerless. He is in servitude. He is willing to obey, not them, willing to obey his Father to accomplish his will. He demeans himself. And in so doing, that is a great sign of confidence. What do we mean? You know, we don't like to be toppled off of our pedestals. We, you know, human nature, we like to be promoted. We like for people to admire what we've done in our works and we, we don't admit it. We, sometimes it's false humility. You know what I'm saying. We, we all have a little bit of problem with that, with that pride. But then when somebody points out our weakness, then all of a sudden we're vulnerable. And it attacks our identity. And, and we become not confident, but it undermines our confidence. In fact, this demonstrates Christ's confidence. The fact that He can do this says that He knows who He is. Nothing can break the essential relationship that is most important to him. He's obeying the Father. And what is Jesus' identity? He is a son of man and he is a son of God. And they come together in his relationship with his Father. Whose servant is he? He's the Father's servant. He is there to do the Father's will. And he did it thoroughly in John 17. He says in his great intercessory prayer, I glorified you, Father, while I was on the earth, and I accomplished, I finished, I then ended the work that you have given me to do. You see, he was confident in his identity of the Father, and he could stoop to serve. Peter's response, another point, tells us something about humility. God calls us to serve each other. Wash each other's feet. It doesn't mean literally, necessarily, that you go wash their feet physically, but we serve. This says nobody is immune to needing help. Each one of us needs help. But you see, we're not usually willing to admit that. That was another one of Peter's problems. He didn't want to admit that, you know, the Lord could serve him. That's arrogance. And maybe there was a little bit of arrogance there. It also does something else. It denies a blessing to someone else and the privilege of serving when they come to you and they want to serve. If you have a need, if I have a need, and there's another servant of the Lord that comes to you and wants to help meet that need, we need to do what? We need to be obedient. We need to listen to the Father. We need to admit that we are not self-sufficient. We need to admit that we need each other. And then we need to let them serve us And then do what? Thank them and thank the Lord for sending it. Mm. 
Almost finished. Servanthood should be contagious. Jesus Christ served the disciples and he serves us. And then he tells them and he tells us to do what then? Serve one another, wash each other's feet. This reinforces a couple of other principles in Scripture. Freely you have received, do what? Freely give. It's more blessed. Jesus said this, but we don't find it in the Gospels. Paul tells us later in Acts. Jesus says it's more blessed to do what? To give than to receive. And he sets the example in his next command. You see, this happens then before John 13. We're in John 12. Uh, well, in John 13. And a little bit later in John 13, what does he do? Love one another. This is a demonstration of love. Love one another how? As I have loved you. How did I just show you that I loved you? I washed your feet. In serving, he not only served others, but he taught them how to serve. This is very important, folks. When we wash somebody else's feet, we not only serve them, we are teaching them to do what? To serve. And then what they do is when they wash somebody's feet, they not only serve, but they teach somebody else to serve. And what this does is it becomes contagious. Before long, we're compelled to serve and not rule. And it establishes a perpetual chain of servanthood. Two last points. We never supplant Jesus as the master. Hmm. Look at verses 13 through 16. We are right when we recognize that Jesus is teacher and Lord. He still continues to be teacher and Lord. And he serves us today, but he's still teacher and Lord. Who's greater, the master or the servant? The master is what he says. And yet I'm among you as the one who serves. He served because he loved us. He served because he loved us and he wanted, us, wanted to show us how to do what? How to love one another. But because He served us, it does not make us greater than, than He is. Who is always the Master? He is. He continues being the Master and the Teacher. You know, sometimes we get so enamored of... Uh, you get enamored of people. Sometimes we fall in love with leading. We fall in love with people looking at us and say, Oh, what a great leader and that sort of thing. And fulfilling the will that God has for us and everything. And sometimes if we're not careful... We don't want to admit it, but sometimes we let ourselves step into the place of the teacher and the master. Now, he calls us to be teachers. There's a gift of teaching. We're going to pray for people to come with a gift of teaching to Gamble Street. But you know what he's saying. Don't let people call you rabbi and master because you're not the rabbi. You're not the master. I always am. And then last of all, true servant leaders are always servants. You know, in the rabbinical schools, in the medieval um, a guild, a person served as a, an apprentice and then a journeyman so that they might become a what? A master. Hmm. That's not the purpose of this kind of servanthood. This kind of servanthood, the goal of servanthood is to do what? It's to serve. Hmm. The goal of foot washing is to teach us how to serve. And the goal of serving is that we might learn better how to serve. The goal of Serving is to teach others how to serve. The goal of serving is to be content with the reward of serving for itself. You heard, you've heard me say this before. Some people talk about servant leadership. Great book on servant leadership, The Seminal Work, written in 1977, based on an essay that he wrote in 72 by Robert Greenleaf. He was a Quaker. A lot of the principles that are in here are biblical principles, but not all of them. It's not they're unbiblical, but it's not derived primarily from Scripture. Gene Wilkes, Jesus on Leadership, I think comes closer 
to identify what we would call servant leadership. It's spiritual leadership. But in both of these, I think the point is made. Servant leadership is not this. I will serve until I become the leader. You know what I'm saying? It's become so popular in the, in the corporate world because of Greenleaf's influence that corporations have learned if they can train their people to be servant leaders and you actually serve your constituency, guess what? You make a bigger profit. Why? Because people out there want corporations to do what? To serve them. It's about service, service, service. And they learn service in the corporate world today. But let me tell you, when they become the CEO, many of them forget what it means to be a servant. We don't serve until we lead. We serve in order to become what? Better servants in Scripture. Jesus never stopped serving. After the resurrection, he's by the lake there. And what does he do? Hey, throw your net over here. There are 153 fish right there. And they catch them. And the next thing you see him doing is what? Cooking the fish and the, the bread on the grill and doing what? Serving them. Does he serve now? Yes, he does. He serves the Father. Where is he? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty doing what? Making intercession for you and me. He continues to serve. We never get to the point where we're the leader and we don't serve anymore. You see, servanthood has its own reward. It has its self-perpetuating blessing. It is a privilege to serve the Lord God Almighty. Jesus' whole purpose in coming was to do the will of Him who sent us, and our purpose in going is to do the will of Him who sent us. Ephesians says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good things, to do good works that include serving, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And he closes in verse number 17. If you then do these things, if you do these things that we've talked about tonight, if you serve like He has called you to serve, we are what? What does it say in verse number 17? We have a what? A blessing. The reward in serving is the blessing of serving. Serving the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And I'll remind you once again, that's the way the Scripture ends. Revelation 22, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to be there where the crystal river runs from the throne of God and the fruit of the, uh, the trees for the healing of the nations. And then it says we're going to do two things. Verse number five says we're going to rule forever. But verse number three is the hinge point of that. It says you will also, we will also what? Serve forever.